Matthew 22, 35 to 40, is generally called the great commandment. It's not labeled that in scripture, it's just what we call it. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. We've been in this series now for seven weeks. This is the seventh Sunday since Sarah and Becky started us off talking about hospitality and hosting people and the scriptural instructions on what to do and how to do that. And we've talked about how sharing a meal together creates relationship, it creates communion between us and God and between us and other people. We talked about how to take care of Normans on our street and in our neighborhood and in our life and the disabled, the poor, the lonely, people who have needs around us that they cannot meet themselves. We talked about friendship and building relationship and how to communicate effectively and successfully with people uh, and so on. So today is number seven in this series. This is the culmination of everything. This is the whole point. Everything I've given you the last six weeks is leading up to today. I'm really excited. I told you when we started, way back even before Easter, I, that this, the Lord had very clearly uh, led me to this, to do this, and this is the whole point of everything that we're going to talk about. So we've used this scripture for the last six Sundays. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? What does Jesus want us to do? Because he doesn't mean have all tingly feelings about your neighbor. And it doesn't mean like them. It doesn't mean uh, have good intentions but never actually getting around to doing anything. So how do we love our neighbor? Well, we've been talking about that. And uh, everything's leading up to what I have for you today. So this scripture is called the great commandment, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. There is also another passage where Jesus gave us an instruction called the Great Commission. And it's also one of the very most important statements of Jesus to us. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This one's called the Great Commission. This is Jesus' instruction. This is the mission that he put the church on, is to go and make disciples. So we have the great commandment and we have the great commission. And I would guess that the majority of you are here this morning because you actually want to obey Jesus. You actually want to do these things. Um, I'm thinking that probably you are or you want to be a real Christian. Some of the people are just pretending so that they can ease their conscience, but probably the majority of you here today truly want to love God. You want to love your neighbor and you want to see the people around you come to know Jesus in a real and meaningful way. Is there anybody here that would say, yeah, that's me? Okay. But I also know that the majority of us feel highly unequipped to do that. It stresses us out. When we read these verses, we feel guilty, ashamed, afraid. Oh, I'm not doing that very well or I don't know how to do that, or I tried and I got chewed out, or I feel awkward and scared and it makes me sweat. Trying to talk to people and especially talking to them about Jesus, that would really, really freak me out. So when we read these scriptures, the Great Commandment and the Great Commission, it really stresses people out, I think. I know it does me. 
I grew up as a Christian kid in a Christian home, went to church every Sunday of my life, and nothing terrified me more just really than just talking to somebody that I didn't know, but especially if when the pastor or the Sunday school teacher would talk to me about witnessing, like, oh, no, no, I can't do that. That's not me. I'm totally with everybody that feels that. I I totally get it. We want to, but we're pretty sure we're not doing enough. And if we tried, it wouldn't work. And it really makes us sweat. So I'm here this morning to hopefully give you some peace about that. What if we could know that we are obeying these scriptures? What if we could know for sure that Jesus was satisfied and that he approved of how we are fulfilling these commandments? What if you could find satisfaction and meaning and significance and accomplishment in your life? Everybody's looking for those things. We want to feel like our life has meaning, that we've accomplished something of real value rather than just earning money and putting in our time on earth. If you don't care about those things, today is not your day. But if you do care about those things, today is your day. I told you everything we have talked about so far has been equipping you and leading you to what I, what I wanted to do today. I know very clearly that the Lord told me uh, to go this direction. And for weeks, and back in January and February, I, I continued to get the sense of the Holy Spirit that we were to talk about how to love our neighbor and specifically how to share our faith and how to reach out to the people around us in Jesus' name. Various ways came up, conversations with Sarah, conversation with Josh, conversation with somebody here and there, and then... Uh, I'm over at the Foster's house one day, and Ken says, I'm reading this great book called The Art of Neighboring, and you, you need to read this. It's really simple. It's really powerful. It's really beautiful. And I just knew that it was God. I knew it. And I told him that right in that moment. I was like, this is confirmation from God that what we're supposed to do. And then within a couple of days, I never even told you this, but a pastor friend of mine in South Dakota starts a sermon series on this book, The Art of Neighboring. So I... It's like, okay, God, I get it. I hear you. I hear you. We're going to do it. So we've been doing this now for six weeks. So this is, this is number seven. I, I know that I know that I know this is God's word to our church. All of us together are in this, that God has a mission for us. He has an assignment for us. And he has some encouragement and some peace for us. So I'm going to do something I've never done before. I read this book, and I'm going to condense it for you into one sermon. I never preach other people's stuff. I don't read books and regurgitate them to you. I don't copy other people's sermons. But today, I'm two-thirds of what I'm going to tell you comes right out of this book. I highly recommend it to you. It's a really simple, easy book. It's beautiful. It's exciting. I read it in a few hours. It's really good. It's written by a couple pastors from Minnesota. And their thesis of their book is this, starting with this great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. The thesis of the book is, what if Jesus actually expects us to love our actual neighbors. If you go back and you look in the Greek where Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, if you look up the word neighbor, what does it mean? Well, it actually means neighbor. Can you believe that? Could it be that simple? Could it be that easy? Could it be that powerful? When Jesus said, love your neighbor, is he actually serious? Is it the greatest commandment? 
If the Son of God says this is the greatest thing, it should be the thing we are doing the most, is loving the people who live next to our house. Hello. So these two pastors from Minnesota, they wrote this book, they created a seminar, a conference called The Art of Neighboring, and they travel all over America. And they visit churches and they give this strategy and this teaching that I'm going to give you today. And, and they said they invite police chiefs and mayors and city leaders, and everywhere they go in the cities of America, the city leaders tell them there is no difference at all between a Christian and a non-Christian in the neighborhoods. That we, the church of Jesus, do not neighbor our neighbors any differently than anybody else. That's really bad. That the world cannot see us loving our neighbor. Do you hear me? Repeatedly, over and over, city managers, mayors, police chiefs say there's no way to tell who's a Christian and who isn't. In the context of a neighborhood. From the perspective of a city leader. We need to change that. So I know you are a Christian, and I know you care about the people of the world. You care about the problems of the world. You care about social issues and crime and drugs and isolation and poverty and broken families and abortion. But a lot of you care more about a social issue than you do the people who live next to you. You're crusading on Facebook or crusading through Fox News instead of actually changing somebody's life. Can I get an amen? You care more about people in Washington, D.C. or Hollywood that you will never meet than you do about the people who live in the apartment or the house next door, who you see probably several times a week. You pray more, you cry more, you get angry more about some distant issue or topic or people than you do your lost neighbor who's on his way to hell. And you're not doing anything about it. I am in the same boat. If you really want to change the world, open your front door and see what happens. We can't change the world. Jesus didn't die to change the world. He didn't die to change governments or social issues. He died to set people free, to save people. Jesus isn't going to use you on a global or thousands of people crowd scale. He doesn't want to. He wants you to love your actual neighbor, not everybody in the whole world. We've undefined the word neighbor to sort of mean that just, okay, when Jesus says love your neighbor, that means love everybody. You can't love everybody. It's it's physically impossible. It's impossible in space and time. You cannot know and love everybody. You can have meaningful relationships with the people you're around every day. So we can't just say, oh, yeah, well, that just means Jesus means I, I, I love the people that I come in contact with. No, it actually means the people that you live next to. That's what it means. If you're going to love someone, it helps to know their name. That's a good place to start. So pull out your piece of paper. What you have there is a map of your neighborhood. And these eight squares are the eight closest front doors to your front door. So I don't mean the eight houses that are around your house. Because they may all be down the same street. 
But if you were to stand at your front door and walk to the eight closest front doors from you, you have eight squares there on line A, write down first and last name of your eight closest neighbors. Maybe you don't know the kids, but at least the adults. First and last names. Right now, do it, right now. Do you even know the names of your eight closest neighbors? Maybe you've only lived in your house for a month or two. You can be excused. But I lived in my house for 14 years, and I got, I thought when I saw this, oh, I can do this easy. I know all my neighbors. I got out to house seven and eight, and I don't know their names. Like, dang, I'm not very good. Josh read this, and he said, I thought I was a great neighbor. I'm finding out I am not a very good neighbor. How many of you can do five? Your five closest neighbors, you know, first and last names. Yeah, not even half the people in the room. How many of you can do seven or eight? You can fill it out. Well, being the postmaster doesn't count. (laughs) Do you know that only 10%, as these guys travel the nation, only 10% of American Christians can even name their neighbors? Line B is write a specific significant fact about that person that you know from conversation not something you can see from your house like she has a pretty flower garden but it was born in Mexico or born in Montana or they went to school at Boise State or they have six kids or you know works at the mill in Elgin or whatever so B is a significant fact about that person that you know from actually interacting with that person not something you can see oh they have a really hot car okay but that doesn't count what, what do you know something about these people? That's line B. How many of you can do four or five of those? Yeah, just a handful. Okay, 3% of American Christians can actually know something about their neighbor, all of their eight closest neighbors. Line C is, what is that person's dreams and plans for their future Or what is the greatest tragedy in their past? Less than a half a percent of American Christians know their neighbor's hearts. We claim to be the people who love in Jesus' name. We claim to be spiritual people who honestly care about people. And we do not know our neighbor's hearts. Because we have not made time to know them. Half a percent of the American church really knows their neighbor. If we're going to obey Jesus, let's start with knowing their name. You see, Jesus is, an, is actually a genius. When he says, love your neighbor, it works. The answers to our social problems and our city problems are not another government program. It isn't even another church program. It is every individual Christian loving and knowing and ministering to their neighbors and all of the world's problems would be solved. If we actually did what Jesus said. They don't need more events. They don't need a bigger crowd. They don't need another tract. They don't need another sermon. They need a neighbor that loves them in Jesus' name. In a neighborhood where Christians are leading the way, 
in the relationships amongst the neighborhood, it's safer, it's cleaner, it's happier, it's a brighter place. Crime goes down, kids are watched over, properties get cleaned up, people get served who need help. People watch out for one another when they already know each other. God says in Proverbs 27.10, In the day of your calamity, better is a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. Even as we obey Jesus, of course we obey Him, but it benefits us. You know your neighbors, your neighborhood is a safer place. And do you have neighbors that you could trust with watching your kids at the drop of a hat? Maybe you have a friend across town or across the valley, but do you have a neighbor? It's very rare that trauma or drama or tragedy happens in the neighborhood, but it has happened in ours where all of a sudden there's a really big thing happens and we got to take care of each other. It helps to know each other. Hello? Around here, you know, it could be a fire uh, or a flood, a natural disaster thing, but it can be a personal thing. It can be an arrest. It can be a marriage blow up. It can be a, a hospital emergency and you've got kids and you got to get. Do you have a house within two or three doors that you can knock on at 2 a.m. and say, can you take the kids while I run to the hospital? Better is a neighbor close than a brother far away. Are there people who know you enough that you would do that? I know you might think you would, but do they know that? Years ago, I had a, a woman bang on our door, and she said, I need you to come over to our house right now. Drop whatever's happening. And I run across, and her husband is in hysterics in their house. And he said, I need Jesus right now, and you are the only one I know who has him. And we went through his house, and we collected several trash bags of liquor bottles. And I led him to Jesus. Right there in his living room. I was really, really glad that they knew me. <laughs> and that they knew they could do that. And that they knew where they would find Jesus. They'd never asked before, but they needed him that day. So how are you, in the name of Jesus, caring for your actual neighbors? How are you bringing them into your life? And how are you connecting them with each other? I'm going to guess that there are two problems. Because they're the same two problems I have. It's time and fear. Anybody identify with that? I don't have time for more relationships, and I am not sure I want them. <laughs> Come on. Our time problem is quite ironic. We live the most instant lives in human history, and we are the busiest people ever. We can have anything instantly. Communication and food and travel, it's all really really fast we should have the most spare time of any people in the history of the planet and we are somehow the busiest and the most hurried jesus didn't live that way so of the two of you which one is wrong in all of your busyness are you doing what jesus commanded and said is the most important thing Again, if the Son of God says this is the most important thing, we better actually treat it like it's the most important thing to love the people around us. 
For me, I've told you this over the last few weeks, but for me, it is what I need to be is interruptible. My life is not so important that I can't serve my neighbors. My time and my duties are not more important than theirs. I don't have less time than them. Yes, you have a schedule at work. You have to be there on time and you have to stay a certain number of hours and you have events that you have to be at in the evening. But there is time in most days where you can go across the street and chat with your neighbor for 10 minutes. Or if they show up and need help, you can help them. It is possible. I've told you about our our Normans that live in Embler. You know, we've got our friend Philip, who's 47, but he's really about seven up here. And he comes by at the most inopportune times and wants to talk my ear off and manage whatever I'm doing. And God never says, hey, Mitch, Philip is coming in about 10 minutes. Be ready. No, he's standing in our driveway when we come home. Oh, hi! <laughs> he places himself between the school and our house right when school gets out so that he can talk to all the kids as they go by. He's really, truly just a big kid. He's, he's a wonderful man, and we love him dearly. And you know, I, I know you have your Normans on your street and in your house. If you don't know who Norman I'm talking about, we watched a video called A Man Called Norman a few weeks ago. And just a few days after we watched that video, Philip came to us and he says, my sister's having an all-girl party overnight and I'm kicked out of my house for the night and I need to sleep on your couch. But, okay, God. We just watched a man called Norman and I told the church to take care of their Normans and then here's what we get. It's totally fine. It's completely safe. It's just not us. <laughs> it's not what we do. So Philip spent the night on our couch, and he and I had a slumber party, and it was it was totally fine. We got to be interruptible. Uh, your life is not so important; it's not more important than your neighbors. We have to be interruptible. Yesterday, I was driving down the highway, and a farmer that I know uh, was walking toward his pickup on the side of the road. He'd been out in his field looking at his wheat or something, and I knew that he had some health problems. Last time we talked. And I needed to go where I was going, but I turned around and I parked next to his pickup and we got out and we talked. And he knows that I'm a Christian and a pastor and he's something maybe sort of a Christian. But, you know, we, we know each other enough that, that I, we, I just dove right in. I said, you know, asked him about his health and how he was doing and told him I was praying for him every time I drive by his house. And, and he thanked me and we talked about God and, and it was just maybe maybe 10 minutes, maybe 15 uh, out of my day and I was not late for anything it was it was okay I just have to notice people I just have to notice people and what what they need and what the Holy Spirit might be telling me you can stop your car and say hi you can wander across the street you can go for a walk and wave and chat with people and begin that relationship because as we've said the last couple weeks all relationship goes from stranger to acquaintance to meaningful relationship and so you got to start somewhere and I know that maybe you have those neighbors you've talked to for years and you've forgotten their name and you don't want to admit it get over yourself introduce yourself and make acquaintance start talk about the weather their new car the Seahawks 
their flower garden, whatever it is, just begin that relationship and maybe it will go deep fast or maybe it will stay surface and shallow for months or years, but you continue to make connection and someday when they need Jesus, they will come knock on your door. They may be hysterical and it may be 2 a.m., but they need Jesus and you're going to have him and they're going to know that you do. So get out of your schedule, get out of your time frame, and yes, you have to get your stuff done, and you got to get your kids where you got to get them, but if you truly are too busy to love your neighbor, then you really need to unbusy your life. you got to say no to some other stuff. You know, kids' sports aren't a sin, but most of you could say no to some of them. The other problem we have is fear. It's awkward, it's difficult to make connection. There's a little bit of suspicion of what if that neighbor is, is a machete-wielding psycho. You know, what if, what if, what if. You know, they hardly speak English, I don't know how we would talk to them, or whatever the scenario is. Part of that's American culture. We're very, very divided and fragmented from each other. It's just pathetic that we don't know our neighbors that we actually have to talk about this in church, but it is what America is. Part of it's the media. They feed us crime stories and suspicion, so everybody hides behind their blinds and peeks out and thinks all their neighbors are crazy. And they're thinking that of you, too. I know it's better, probably, here than in the big city. I'm sure it it is better. but, But we live in a very, very insecure culture. Rural America is probably more insecure than city culture. Because city people are rude and forceful and bold. And we are very hold back, be quiet, keep, keep to ourselves, be private, quiet, submissive kind of people as a culture. And by submissive, I mean in the city, if you don't gun it and get out in the intersection when, when you've got 16 feet to get your car in there you're not going to ever get out and here we kind of might wait for somebody else and smile and wave and and then we'll pull in behind them you know because that's what I mean we just things are a little more genteel here but but we're we're very very insecure culture more so than the big city I think there's a bible story that illustrates though what's really going on here when Moses sends the spies into the land of Canaan to spy out the land and Joshua and Caleb and 10 other spies go in and the 10 bad spies come back and they say, oh, their people are big. It's dangerous. Even the food there is big. Everything is big and we are tiny and we're weak. and There's no way we can take the land. It's scary. So they went and they looked at the strangers and they came back afraid. And of course, if you know the story, you know God was angry and made them wander in the wilderness for 38 more years. Eventually, Moses dies, Joshua becomes the leader, and Joshua sends spies in before the Battle of Jericho. They're going to cross the river and take the land. And right before the Battle of Jericho, he sends a group of spies in, two or three guys, and they end up at a prostitute's house. Her name is Rahab. The reason they would go there is because the neighbors would not suspect anything of guys coming and going at all hours and from all strangers and just traveling through. Actually, that's where there weren't hotels. You stayed the, the prostitutes ran the inns is what they did. So uh, they weren't there to visit the prostitute. They were there because that would raise the least suspicion, and that's where every visitor th- coming through a town would stay. 
uh, and you could pay for extra services if you wanted. But these guys end up in Rahab's house, and she tells them, we are so afraid of you. Everybody here is quaking in their boots because of your God. So the spies before had gone and said, oh, they're scary. And the Canaanites were looking at the Israelites saying, oh, we're scared of them. Guess what? Every one of your neighbors is also socially awkward and nervous. And they forgot your name, but they're just not going to admit it. Somebody has got to be mature and suck it up and actually be an adult and walk across the street and say hi. And Jesus said that gets to be you. Go and love your neighbor. If everybody is nervous and everybody is awkward and nobody really knows exactly what to do, it should be us taking the lead. Just be bold. Your neighbor's there mowing his lawn. Just walk across the street and say, I know I have lived here two years and we have only talked three times. I'm really sorry. Let's start over. My name is and yours is all right, that's great. Let's take this serious. Hello? You've seen that neighbor in the hallway numerous times in the apartment building, but you've never, you just say hi. You don't know who they are. You see them coming in the hallway at the same time as you. Walk down and say hi. Awkwardness will not kill us. I totally get awkwardness. I get social fear. I get anxiety. I understand it all. It won't kill us. We can do it. We can do it. Somebody's got to. And if everybody is awkward and it keeps and f- fearful, it keeps us divided. Jesus said, "You love your neighbor. You take the lead." You make the connection. Just stop and talk. That's all you have to do. You don't have to bear your soul and make them bear their soul. You don't have to dump Jesus on them the first time you talk to them. Just say hi. Just talk. Just talk. Peter has something to tell us about this. In a passage about sharing our faith, he says, Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? You might have a really, really grumpy neighbor that just absolutely does not want to talk to you. And you go over and say hi and they ignore you. But most people are going to be warm and talk back and say hi and, and interact with you. Uh, come on. Come on. Most people are. Who is going to hurt you? What, what harm is going to come to you to just talk to a stranger? Nothing. It, it is, I've been balled out. I've had doors slammed in my face. But it wasn't from my neighbors. <laughs> it was from other people. When I was trying to do other things, you could take a plate of cookies. That would probably warm it up. They might wonder if you put razor blades in them. But mostly, if you bring your kids along or, you know, however you're situated, and we bake these cookies for you, we just want to say hi, and sorry we don't know you, and let's, let's connect. And Yeah, thanks. Uh, several years ago, we've lived where we live for 14 years. One of the first Christmases that we lived there, uh, kids were real small, and I, we needed to meet our neighbors, and I also wanted to share Jesus a little bit at Christmas, so we decided we were going to hand-deliver Christmas cards and a little, I think it was a little uh, miniature loaf of banana bread, I think is what Sarah made. It might have been brownies or something, but we had some baked goods and a handmade Christmas card that the kids had colored up, and we went to all the neighbors' houses, and we hand-delivered them. We walked across and said hi, introduced ourselves, and 
Jesus is real. Merry Christmas. God bless you. Just want you to know who we are and say Merry Christmas. People are pretty open to that at that time. You don't have to have a long conversation. It's December. We didn't talk on people's doorsteps for very long. And that was that. It just begins the connection. You learn names. It's a way to make a connection. You could, if you feel safe enough with somebody, you could invite them over for a barbecue in your backyard or to swim with the kids in your pool or however your situation is. These guys, these two pastors that wrote this book, they recommend block parties. Get all the neighbors together at once and have a party. Have everybody bring food and get to know each other all at once. And just begin conversation, like we've talked about the last couple weeks. Conversation starts with things we can see. Talk about the weather, the flower garden, the sports, or their new car. Or, and then that naturally progresses into personal information. Where do I work? How, you know, how much family, kids, and brothers and sisters, or where are you from, and stuff like that. But once you get through that, you have to wade through that before you can get to meaningful stuff. And eventually... People do share their dreams and their desires and relationships and regrets and pain and you find out that so-and-so is dealing with cancer or their mom is elderly and dying or they're going through a divorce or bankruptcy or whatever the case may be and then you have some hope and some truth to offer. Direct relationship, and I mean they know you and you know them, is the most uncreepy way to share Jesus. Most of the ways people share Jesus are either really stupid or really creepy. There are so many stupid ideas out there that people do to represent Jesus. And in our culture, it may be totally different somewhere else in the world, but in our culture, in rural America... In 2017, most everybody has been to church either for a funeral or a wedding at least, or they went to Sunday school as a kid or whatever, and they have decided one of two things. Yes, I am a Christian, or no, I am not on purpose. So the people who say, oh yeah, Jesus and I are cool, I'm a Christian, yeah, what they really mean is I'm not a Muslim and I'm not a Buddhist, Okay, but you and I know they're not Christians. They're not living for Jesus. There's no fruit coming from their life. They are a country music song, God and country, party Saturday night, church Sunday morning kind of a Christianity. And if you went out in Union County, you would find probably 85% of people in the Grand Ronde Valley would say, oh yeah, sure, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, my grandma took me to church when I was a kid. Or yeah, You're nodding, you know what I mean. Everybody thinks they're a Christian and we know they're not. But they have decided that they are. Or they have been to church and run into some serious condemnation or hypocrisy. And they have decided, I want nothing to do with that. My point is, regardless of which side of the fence they're on, they think they know about Jesus. They think they know what the Bible says. They think they know what a Christian is. And they have decided, oh, I am one or no way. Are you with me? In other countries, it may be different, but not in... Eastern Oregon. There's nobody that hasn't already heard something and they think they know it. So knocking on people's door isn't going to work. The Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons are bothering them enough. 
and the cold call salespeople are bothering them enough. And so Pastor Dwayne used to have us do that in these neighborhoods, and I went around with a couple other people, and we got every single door slammed in our face. It was horrible, and there was no fruit. Other people have other models of what it means to share our faith in Jesus. They're going to leave a tract on the restaurant table that looks like money, but they're too cheap to leave an actual tip. Do not, do not do that. Fine if you want to leave a tract for your waitress, but leave a tip. Stupid stuff people do in Jesus' name. And it gives us such a bad name. Or they just cold call people on the sidewalk. Do you know about Jesus? Or the, the Bethel model of treasure hunts or going to find disabled people and pray for healing. And, and I've done that. We've done that. We've, but over the years, I have wondered, where is the fruit? No one that I've ever prayed for, even successfully, when they interacted with me and we prayed and we did a treasure hunt in Walmart. And we met this lady and we, prayed for, we actually bought her purchase. And then we prayed for her and she cried. And, and, she, and she said, I'll be in church on Sunday. I've never seen her since. Jesus didn't say go out and pray for people, and he didn't say go out and make converts. He said go make disciples, people who are added to the church and are living their lives for Jesus. I don't see any fruit coming from street evangelism, Facebook posts, bumper stickers, our church carnivals. We quit them because it was a huge amount of money and time, and there wasn't any fruit. Like, God, what do you want us to do? We don't want to spin our wheels here. Where is a strategy that actually works? Love your neighbor. It was there all along. Jake and View Simonis. You know who I'm talking about? Okay, they're our missionary in Thailand. Jake is married to a Thai girl named View, and she grew up a Buddhist. And she told me this story while they were here over the winter. And she said, uh, she grew up Buddhist. Her mom is a Buddhist nun. I mean, she's a very devout practicing Buddhist. And she went to university and she began to meet up with a YWAM mission group on campus. They gave her information about who Jesus was and the gospel. And she was unfamiliar with that. She read it and was intrigued, but made contact with these group these people over and over again she said at one point they did a skit on the plaza on campus the front lawn or whatever it would be called they did a a, sort of a skit to act out the gospel and the cross and Jesus and she said and I went home and I sobbed it touched me so deeply but I had no idea why she said I just cried and then I went right back to my Buddhist incantations and praying to the ancestors and the gods and all this. She said, but when the two Christian girls made me their friend and brought me into friendship with them, not trying to convert me, but just loved me, and they brought me into the group, then the entire thing made sense. And she renounced Buddhism and came to Jesus and got baptized and saved and wasn't too long before she met Jake after that. So here's a person we know that has zero Christian context, no information whatsoever. She gets the doctrinal information. She reads it, doesn't reject it, but doesn't really make sense. She has an emotional, spiritual connection with the Holy Spirit. 
It's very touching. Nothing happens. When they come in, bring her into relationship, then that's the thing that wraps it all up. She said, when they loved me, then it made sense. Hello? So I'm not, I'm certainly not saying that these other models of evangelism, like praying for healing for people on the sidewalk or treasure hunts or tracks, and none of that's wrong. I just don't think it's complete in any way. To just pray for somebody and, well, sorry you didn't get healed. Have a nice life. You know, we can do random acts of kindness, but the world can too. Jesus said, love your neighbor. Be in relationship with them. It's a, it's a command. You've heard preachers say this before, but it's called the great commandment and the great commission. They're not called the great suggestion and the great request. Hello? I got a quote here from Brother Andrew. He says, the work of the church is not survival. She exists to fulfill the great commission. We're not here to be entertained every Sunday until Jesus comes back. We're not even here to learn new things every Sunday until Jesus comes back. You are alive to reach people for Jesus, to love people in his name, to share your faith, to take care of your neighbors. That is the reason why we are here. And what is the best way with the people you already know? Come on. They don't want us to knock on their door. They don't want another sermon. They're really not interested in attending an event. They're busy enough. But if they have a neighbor that they know that lives two houses down, that seems like a really cool family, and their kids are well-behaved, and, and they're friendly, and it seems like somebody I can trust, that might be somebody I would be interested in getting to know. And it might be months or years before you have a meaningful conversation, but we're headed that direction. And when tragedy strikes, if you have then, you have some love to share and you have some Holy Spirit power to share. This is how Jesus did it. Jesus did ministry relationally. It's how he commanded the apostles to do it. When he sent out the 70, he said, find somebody's home to stay in. What is that? It's hospitality. It's hosting. It's relationship. It's community. Hello? He said, find somebody's house to stay in and stay there. And then preach to them the gospel of the kingdom is at hand. Make relationship first, then share me. And stay in that relationship before, during, and after. Don't move from house to house. Don't move from town to town. Jesus said it specifically. Don't travel around. Stay in that relationship and share Jesus. Our models are seriously wrong. It might be why we're not really very successful. Because Jesus is a genius. He said, love the people who live nearby. So in this post-Christian culture that we live in, where everybody thinks they know everything they need to know, and they've already made their decisions, the only thing that is actually going to change their mind, it isn't a Facebook post, it isn't a bumper sticker, it isn't you arguing with them, it is, I like that person. I wonder what they have that I don't. This guy that called me in the emergency, he told me, he never said any of this over the years, but in that moment he said, I knew you're the one I needed to talk to and that you had what I needed because I see how you treat your kids. He said, I, I watch 
that you are the same person no matter where you go. You know, we'd never had a conversation more than an inch and a half deep. And all of a sudden, I am in the depth of his soul. And he is completely open and desperate. And he says, I need Jesus now. But man, there is a time when people just get broken. And you may think that you're not accomplishing anything or doing anything for Jesus or being anything meaningful, but your neighbors are watching. Your neighbors are watching. And they see who you are, and their opinion of you is much more honest than your own opinion of you. Good and bad. Their opinion is much more realistic than yours. Our opinion of ourselves is usually unrealistic. We live in this post-Christian environment where people are suspicious or antagonistic toward the gospel, or I've already made my decision, yeah, Jesus and I are cool. But if you will create relationship, you can disciple people. You can, as you get to know them, they will get to know you. And as they get to know you, your story better be about Jesus. If your story isn't about Jesus, you need to get saved. If you are nervous and hiding Jesus from your family and friends, you need to get saved. You're the one that has the problem, not them. Jesus should just come out of you in wherever you're at and whatever. Never in a forced way like, I'm going to throw Jesus on this neighbor right now. No, you're just telling your story. You're telling your life, and this is what he did for me. This is who I used to be, and this is who I am now. Come on. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let me be very, very clear about the motivation of what I'm talking about. We are not going out to love our neighbor so that we can stick Jesus on them. Okay, The way the authors of this book put it is, we are not loving our neighbor to get them converted. We are loving our neighbor because we have been converted. Hello? Let me say it again. We are not going out to love our neighbor to get them converted. We are going out to love our neighbor because we have been converted. If we go with an agenda, it isn't love. You're a salesman and you're hiding something that I'm going to go, I'm going to go talk to this neighbor every day and three weeks from now, I'm just going to hook them for Jesus. That isn't love. That is manipulation. It is control. It is super slimy. It is gross. You're not loving them at all. But there's a difference between an ulterior motive and an ultimate motive. An ulterior motive is an agenda that I'm hiding what I really want until I can finish the sale. An ultimate motive is I want everyone I am related to and everyone I know to know Jesus like me. And I'm going to love them in Jesus' name just because. But my ultimate motive absolutely is that you would know Jesus and be free from your sins and your addictions and, your, and all of the problems and that you would know Jesus like I do. That isn't slimy at all. Because I don't have an agenda that makes me do what I do. I have an agenda for your freedom. So I'll be patient. I'm not going to slime you and call it evangelism. I might wait three or four years until you're ready. And in the meantime, I will love you. I will take care of you. I will help you. I will know you. 
just for the sake of knowing you. We don't want any ulterior motive. We want an ultimate motive, though. Here's a quote from Todd White. Some of you will recognize the name. Let it not be about ministry. Let it not be about mission. Let it be about Jesus. We're not going out to evangelize the neighborhood. We're going out to love our neighbor. And in the process, people will come to Jesus if you are a real Christian. Be ready to give an answer for your faith. But notice it says be ready to give an answer. That means they asked. That means it came up naturally in conversation. You did not throw a tract up in their face. Be ready to give an answer for your faith. Be ready and be patient to move at a moment's notice when somebody knocks on your door and says, I need Jesus right now. Or be ready to wait years and years and years and just love that difficult person over and over and over again and eventually you will break down that resistance and they will see that you are the real deal and you are not a hypocrite. So I've told you who over the last few weeks that, you, you were, that we're to be in, in love and relationship with the people of our church, with the poor, with those with needs, those disabled and broken around us. And now this morning I'm telling you, Jesus said, love your immediate neighbors, the people who live around your house or your apartment. I've told you how to interact with people and how to be a friend and how to build relationship. And now we're going to do it. We're not just once, but to make a lifestyle. Here's the challenge for today, is that all of us together, the whole church, this is God's word to us. This has been the whole point of everything. All of us individually in our own neighborhoods, we're going to invite over a neighbor, an individual or a couple or a family, whatever. We're going to invite over a neighbor that we have never interacted with before. And you're just going to meet them and begin the process of relationship. I don't mean sick Jesus on them. I mean, invite them over for a beer and a burger or Papa Murphy's or s'mores. We're doing this in June because you can do this in the summer. We have to hibernate through the winter. You know, you don't see your neighbors very much. But I timed this so it would be the beginning of summer. In the month of June, we're all going to invite over a neighbor that maybe you've known for years or maybe you just met, but you've never had real interaction with them. Invite them over for a meal. Begin the process of making relationship. You may find that they don't care to be your friend. You may find that they immediately latch on. I don't know. It may be somebody who seems like they've got it all together and they do. They may seem to have it all together and they don't. They may appear to be very poor and needy and you're going to take care of them. And they're your Norman on your street. But we're going to do this all together and see what God does. As we have said, if you are a private Small group people, invite over one person. If you're a single girl, invite over the single girl in the apartment down the way and go to coffee. If you're a family, invite over a family. Kids can play in the pool or jump on the trampoline and cook some burgers and have a good evening. Uh, Whatever it looks like for you. Or the strategy these two pastors recommend is have a block party. Get all your neighbors over together for a party at once. All the people that live on your street or your road, invite everybody over. Have a potluck. You know, we can twiddle our thumbs and pray and prophesy revival or we can get down to doing the work of evangelism. So we're going to meet our neighbors. We're going to do it on purpose because we are disciples of Jesus. Everybody's awkward. It's okay. Just get over it. Knock on doors. Invite them to your house.
or apologize for forgetting their name for three years and reboot that relationship or meet the new neighbor that just moved in and invite them down for s'mores. It doesn't have to be more than an hour. It's like, my June is full. I can't do this, Mitch. Your June is not full. If it seriously is, you have a serious problem. But you do have an hour. Some Tuesday night or some Friday night, you have an hour you can invite a neighbor over. Make a new friend. Just to make a friend. And as we do this, not right off the bat, maybe it takes months or years of continued interaction and building relationship, but eventually they know you and you know them and Jesus comes out of you in a natural way. You don't have to have a witnessing strategy. You just live life. And you are who you are. And you talk to your neighbors. And when their problems come up, you say, let's pray about that. Or how can we serve you? Or how about you come to church with me? They don't know you have a rock star worship team and a great preacher. Invite them. Invite them. They'll come. And then when they come, it's already in relationship. They don't feel like an outsider weirdo sitting there thinking, who are these people and I'm a stranger and I don't know anybody and they already know somebody. Come on. Yeah, it's totally fine to invite the clerk at the cash register at Safeway to church, but if you don't know her, she's probably not going to come, but your neighbor might because they know you and they see your life and they see who you are. So, yeah, we got to have boundaries. There's an old saying, and it's very true, good fences make good neighbors. You know, you have to have a, a fence down the property line. This is mine, and that is yours. <laughs> got to have a gate and a door that we shut at night. This is my home. It's not yours. So some people will latch on and be very needy and try to use you. Other people won't care at all. Other people will be scary and gruff. going to wade into people's lives, and they are who they are. And we got to figure out how to get along. But I'm not saying to throw open your boundaries and just and accept anything and everybody. And but we are responsible to Jesus to to love our neighbor. And it will take money, and it will take time, and it will take help. But again, we we got to focus that down. We're not in charge of loving the entire world. We're not in charge of loving even the entire city. It is who are my actual neighbors? Well, start with the eight closest houses to you. Take care of those people. Some of them won't care. But one or two of them will be a success. And then, it's not just them coming into your life. You will come into their life. And watch what Jesus does when he comes into somebody's life. From the, the next passage is from Luke. It's the story of where Jesus meets Matthew, who was also named Levi. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he left all and rose up and followed him. And Levi gave him a great feast at his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained about his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. When you meet your neighbor and bring them into your life, they will bring you into their life and you get to meet their family and their social circle and there's all sorts of opportunities for Jesus. Jesus meets Matthew. Matthew meets Jesus. Matthew says, I'm going to throw a party tonight. Jesus, please come and meet all my friends. Come on. 
You're there, you're in relationship with your neighbor on an every average day. Something big happens and you're there to minister to them. And then all of a sudden they meet Jesus or they get healed or whatever. And then like, oh, you've got to come over and meet my mom. You've got to come over and meet my sister. Most of you are like, I don't need that. I don't need, I don't need more. Jesus wants more. Come on. Matthew throws a big party of all his drunk prostitute IRS agent friends and Jesus and his disciples go to the party and the religious people judge them. Why are you eating with prostitutes and drunks and IRS agents? Jesus says, this is where I like to hang out. So one of the two pastors that writes this book, he says they've moved around from church to church and and one of the neighborhoods they lived in on a cul-de-sac, they were planning a block party. This is what my wife and I do. Whenever we move into a new neighborhood, we meet all the neighbors and they meet us. And and he said, usually the neighbors don't even know each other. They've all lived there and we're brand new and and we facilitate them meeting each other. He said, we were planning a block party and one night, Friday night, uh, there's this booming, loud, booming music. We look out our front door and on the neighbor across the street, their garage door is up and in their garage, they have a bar and and a disco ball and a karaoke bar or karaoke machine, and there's 50 or 75 people in the driveway and in the garage having a blast. And they realize, oh, we don't need to host this block party. So some day later, they go over to the neighbors and they ask, was that a, a neighborhood party? Or No, those are just our friends from work and whatever else. They said, have you ever thought of hosting a block party at your garage bar? Like, no, that would be great. So the pastor organizes the guy with the bar in his garage to host the block party and the pastor and his wife go around and invite all the neighbors and they, and they bring their potluck dishes and they meet in this family's garage and they sing karaoke. They said it was the wildest, funnest, liveliest block party we've ever been a part of. The cops got called, but when they showed up, there was nobody to complain because all the neighbors were there at the party. So he said, we met all our neighbors, they all met each other, some of them knew each other, some of them didn't, and we had a grand time. So then then that sparked a relationship with this neighbor across the street, and they began to talk, and and, uh, they said, you know, they knew we were a pastor and so on, and so occasionally Jesus came up, or the Bible, or whatever, and they never did get saved, they never did receive Jesus, but at some point in the conversation it came up that... My wife and I are hosting a Bible study. We're starting a Bible study at our house. And, and these neighbors with the garage bar and the disco balls, we'll host your Bible study. They're not even saved. And we'll host your Bible study. And the pastor says, this is going to be a fun Bible study. <laughs> so he says, we have Bible study in the neighbor's garage with the disco ball. And people that would never come to my church, and they wouldn't even come to my house, come to my neighbor's house, and I get to share Jesus. And... People are getting saved and born again and free from sin. And this is what Jesus did. He goes to Matthew's party. He isn't going to get drunk. He's going to love people and take care of them and share the kingdom. Come on. If Jesus is hanging out there, it says, and his disciples. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you will be hanging out with Jesus. Jesus is hanging out with your neighbors. Even when they're doing stupid stuff. He's still hanging out with them. He's at their party. Come on. The religious people won't like it. But if we do this, if we actually get in real relationship with really messed up worldly neighbors, (laughs) and we're just there to be in relationship, and eventually, yeah, someday, we hope they're 
they get free. We hope they find Jesus. But in the meantime, we're just being neighbors. Jesus will show up. They will invite you into their social circle, and you got all the much more people to, for Jesus to love and save. Some of you are now terrified. We are just starting with one neighbor, okay? All of us together in our own homes, on our own streets, but all of us together this month in June, we are going to invite over one neighbor we do not have not yet met, that we have not had social interaction. We may have had a hi, how are you? Or it's a beautiful day, isn't it? You know, as they're mowing their lawn or something, but we're going to find a neighbor and invite them over and get to know them. Just to get to know them. Are we in? We can do this. And then we're going to share our stories with the rest of the church. Some of it won't go well. Some of it will be, eh, it was okay. Others of it will go smashingly well. I'm going to share it with the church. Coming up. Let's do it. You know. I'll bet most of you already know who the Holy Spirit is already telling you. Yep, it's them. Yep, it's him. You got it. All right. Let's do it. Lord Jesus, we love you, we bless you, we praise your name. Thank you for your word and instruction, Lord. Lord, we repent of being selfish with our time, of being suspicious of our neighbors, and not actually obeying you when you said to love them. Lord, please forgive us for not taking your commandment seriously. The thing that you said is the greatest thing, and we're not even doing it. We repent right now. And we say we will be those who obey you, Lord. We'll be your people to love our neighbors. Not with an ulterior motive, but with an ultimate motive of sharing your love and your grace and your salvation. Your hope and truth to people who are lost. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us strategy. Give us your Holy Spirit power. Give us life in our words and in our bodies that we can share with those around us. Lord, I pray for each person here that you give them peace and boldness to do this. To just walk across the street and introduce themselves and make a connection. To invite people over to their grill or their fire pit or their swimming pool or their trampoline. To organize block parties to get all the neighbors together and begin Connecting with people, learning names, learning facts, and then coming into real heart relationship with the people who live around them. We can know where they're at and what they're facing so that we can share your love and your truth and your freedom and your power and your healing. Thank you, Lord, that it's so simple and it's so beautiful and it's so powerful. We don't need a project. We don't need a program. We just need to talk to the people who live next to us. And you will take care of all that needs taken care of. Lord, we bless you and we love you. We want to obey you. Amen.